Hello my fellow Tudor time travellers, it's Sarah here and welcome to April's edition of the Tudor Travel Show. So we are going to be travelling to two very different locations today. The first one is set in the lush Gloucestershire countryside and as some of you will know is one of my favourite locations. We're going to be talking to Maya who is head of community for Dig Ventures and they're undertaking a very exciting archaeological dig there at Sudley this summer. And we're going to be hearing, first of all, all about that dig, what they hope to find and how you can get involved. And then we're going to be talking to the best-selling author, Tony Riches. And we're going to be talking to Tony about one of his favourite Tudor locations close to his Pembrokeshire home in West Wales. Maybe you can guess from that where we're going to be talking about. But first of all, let's head over and talk to Maya and find out all about this really exciting summer that's going to be unfolding at Sudley this year and just how you can get involved. So it's a big hello to Maya. Hi, Maya. Welcome to the show today. Hello. I'm <laughs> very, very excited to be here. Oh, well, that's lovely to hear. And um, it's, a, it's a really interesting subject because it's one that caught my eye last year. And um, I'm looking forward to getting all the details, getting down and dirty and getting all the details. Maybe that's very appropriate to say, given what it's we're going to be. Absolutely, digging up the dirt on Tudor history. Perfect. So, but before we get into that particular topic, you work for an organisation called Dig Ventures, which maybe, you know, quite a few people might not have heard of. So, so who are Dig Ventures? Dig Ventures are a team of archaeologists who run excavations that everyone in the world can join in with. Um, we sort of see ourselves as keeping the time team spirit alive. So we know there's, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who loved that program and loved the way that um, the experts spoke about the subject in a way that was really engaging and informative and just sort of exposed the process of archaeology to people. And we feel like our role is to take that to the next level, to give people the opportunity to switch from just watching to actually doing and taking part in archaeology and living that dream that I know so many people have of wanting to be an archaeologist. Mm. And you're so right. Time Team was just so popular, wasn't it? And people were bereft when it was taken off screen. And it really did stimulate a lot of interest in the subject. Um, so it's wonderful to hear that you have, you know, taken on that mantle. When when was Dig Ventures created then? So Dig Ventures started out in 2012. Our first site that we crowdfunded and excavated was a site called Flag Fen, which a lot of people will have heard of through Francis Pryor. But we'll also have heard of through um, Must Farm, which was a massive Bronze Age site that's been found where everything's really perfectly preserved. You know, there's little balls of cotton and all of that kind of stuff. And Flag Fen is, is sort of just across the water from it. So they're really just two parts of the same landscape. 
Since then, we've gone on to excavate things like Lindisfarne, one of the first sites to be attacked by Vikings in the UK. Uh, we've investigated Bronze Age burial mounds in Lancashire. Um, we've excavated sites in the US, a historic Shaker settlement. Mm-hmm. This year, we're heading out to excavate one of the earliest Roman settlements ever discovered in the East Rising of Yorkshire. So that would have been somewhere where the very first Romans who crossed the Humber would have spent a bit of time. Wow. Um, we've had adventures basically all around the country, all around the world, across all periods of time. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I was interested um, to see that your methodology, if you like, is to get these projects crowdfunded. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about that at at the end, but that must have been pretty innovative, right? Yeah, absolutely. We were the first crowdfunded excavation to happen in the world. And it it works like a dream. I mean, it's it's a lot of hard work to crowdfund a dig and to mm-hmm. build a community and get people involved. But it works to produce some incredible archaeological results. In the UK, archaeology happens in one of two ways, usually. Um, one is ahead of development work. So if somebody's going to build a car park or a new set of homes, you have to call in the archaeologist and get some archaeology done uh, just to check that there's yeah. what's yeah. there. Um, the other way is through a university. Um, but what happens to all of the stuff in between? For example, like Lindisfarne, these incredible, important archaeological sites, but aren't in threat of development and aren't perhaps necessarily um, being excavated by a university. And what we've found is that crowdfunding can can produce great results for sites that, that sit in between, that are important to the public, significant, of great interest, um, but don't necessarily have resources coming from somewhere else to investigate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's great that you're trailblazing. I, I certainly hadn't heard of that in relation to archaeology before. So great to see getting so many people involved. And as I said, we'll come back to talking about how people can get involved at the end of our chat. But let's talk about what you're doing, because I saw that you were doing some digging at Sudley Castle. And of course, Sudley is a much beloved uh, Tudor site. Um, it's a very popular destination for us Tudorphiles and happens to be just down the road from me. So it's particularly interesting. But what were you doing and, and what took you there? It is such a fantastic story. I'm I'm so excited about it. Um, Sudley Castle is, as you said, it's an absolutely beautiful place. It's full of history and people who go there will you know, they'll feel like they're almost living and breathing. They can feel that the Tudor, the Tudor history there as they're walking around. But there's even more to the history there than meets the eye. So we were actually called in by the team at Sudley Castle to investigate a mystery in one of the fields right next to the castle. For years, they've been wondering about the location of a very, very famous party that took place there in 1592. Now I know Sudley well so there's the there's the castle and then there's the parterre isn't there with the garden and so is this particular field next to the garden? It's just slightly to the east of the castle and in front of the gardens Um, and it'd been posing a bit of a mystery for a while and so he got some geophysics and a ge- and a topographic survey done. And the results revealed this beautiful geometric outline 
how amazing so so a large geometrical structure how how big was this structure from the geophys well it's interesting that you bring up the queen's garden so currently it looks to be about twice the size wow um but it seems to have a similar sort of layout. So you can see that the whole area is divided into four quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and those quarters are then further subdivided into triangles. And in the middle, there's a kind of circular depression where it looks like there might have been possibly. Mm. This is going to give away what we think it is a little bit. <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> so really what it looks like is that this whole field is filled with the very, very rare remains of an actual original Tudor garden. Wow. So one of the things I'm wondering, Maya, is is why are Tudor gardens so rare? That is a fantastic question. Um, We have this idea in our head of Tudor gardens as these beautiful, elaborate places that would have been so enjoyable to walk around amongst the, the exotic plants that were being brought in from all over the world. But actually, they hardly survive in England. Um, and that's that's because there was this landscaping movement led by Caper, Capability Brown that basically meant that a lot of these formal gardens were destroyed, basically erased, which means that these days there actually aren't any left. We have, we have a tantalizing glimpse of them from a few historical records and descriptions and the occasional drawing. But actually most of them have disappeared. So that's the Georgians at it again, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Causing so much trouble, those troublesome Georgians. They really did. <laughs> Don't get me started on Georgians, I tell you. Um, but here, yeah, here at Sudley Castle, it's it's really something of a miracle. Um, after, after the Civil War, it was basically left to ruin the whole place. So there was no formal gardening happening. And so the Tudor garden that was built there has been left untouched and it's just been it's just been lying there overgrown buried and it's waiting Hmm. almost perfectly preserved for us to investigate oh that's so wonderful so that's so that is beautiful and it's very difficult to describe i'm not very good at giving comparable sizes but um it's you know the the existing gardens are substantial aren't they so this area must be you know Really, I can imagine it's covering quite a large area. What would get left behind in a garden that you could find? I, you know, I'm just thinking from a purely amateur's point of view, you know, gardens are all soil and plants and, and you dig them over and that's that. So what? how can you see this layout of the garden? What, what is it that's making that? Yeah, so fantastically, we think that this garden is actually one of only two in the whole country where some original Tudor paths survive. So what we can see at the moment from the geophysics is the the layout of the paths and maybe where the beds were. But what we don't know at the moment and what we need to go in and investigate is what was in those beds, what were the paths made of, how did the thing actually look in in the Tudor period, you know, in that period when Sudley Castle was being visited or frequented by Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I, and even when Catherine Parr was there, these incredible Tudor queens would all have enjoyed this garden. Hmm, that's incredible. And it's, it's going to be our job to go in and try to find out what it would have looked like while so, they were there. So you did a test dig, didn't you, uh, last summer, is that right? 
That's correct, yeah. What does that entail exactly? Before you start any archaeological project, it's a good idea to go in and do a little test excavation. It's a little bit like the archaeological equivalent of a medical biopsy. Before you go in and do some surgery, <laughs> you take you take some small samples and you test and you establish um, you know, how well preserved um, the, the artefacts and the structures might be. You try to work out the depth of the archaeology and all of those very basic questions that you need to know in order to put your trenches in the right place and plan out how much time you're going to need. So it, it was very much, um, yeah, the equivalent of a biopsy. Mm. So you described the fact that you found the garden and maybe some Tudor paths and beds. Um, is there anything else that you think might be lurking in this garden? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. I'm so <laughs> glad you asked because this garden is just, it's magical when, whenever I picture it I just um I get I get very excited about trying to imagine what it would have been like because at one end of the garden there's this huge mound which could be a viewing mound although we don't think it is mm-hmm. we think it could be is the site of a pavilion or a banqueting house um now we don't think it's just any old banqueting house. We think there's actually a rather remarkable story behind it. Oh, do tell, do tell. Oh, oh, <laughs> I, I can't wait to share this with you. So we think it's actually a banqueting house that was built especially for Elizabeth I. So in the Sidley Castle archives, there are records of this phenomenal three-day party that took place in 1592. Mm. It was the anniversary, the fourth anniversary of the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And Elizabeth was on one of her summer progresses around the country. Mm-hmm. And that evening, she arrived at Sudley Castle, obviously in a very good spirit to celebrate. Mm. And what ensued were three days of nonstop partying. Um, and we think it took place possibly in this banqueting house. It's been it's been a big question that's been hanging over Sudley Castle for years. Where where did this party actually take place? And the geophysics and the initial non-invasive surveys that we've done are all starting to point to this corner of the garden where there looks to be the remains of a banqueting house. I find Tudor banqueting houses really fascinating. So I hope you don't mind me if I'm I'm stepping outside of my I certainly am stepping outside of any area of expertise I have in it, but I'm I'm I think about there was a banqueting house at Hampton Court Palace at the bottom of the garden which was a really amazing structure. It had like this spiral path that led up to this kind of round banqueting house and I just think they're quite fascinating structures. And uh, were they very common and was this something that you would likely find in most high status properties well the, what's really interesting about them actually is that i suppose until the last couple of years there's not been a huge amount known about these structures there's been an awful lot of research that is focused on things like the castles the stately homes the kind of really big important buildings but what's starting to emerge through research that's been done by historic royal palaces and 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 now us hopefully picking up the mantle too is the importance of more temporary structures in Tudor England so banqueting houses um, timber lodgings things that weren't permanent stone-built structures but were nonetheless incredibly impressive and had a really important role in um, 
the sort of itinerancy of the Tudor court as it moved around the country with its retinue and still wanting to live in luxury as they moved around. And these banqueting houses built ahead of, for example, Elizabeth's arrival at Suderley Castle would have been part of that, accommodating accommodating her retinue ahead of a massive party. Mm. And can it, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, there may be peop- a lot of people out there who, who don't really, I mean, a banqueting house, it does give quite a lot away in the name, but um, maybe you could just tell us exactly what happened in a banqueting house. Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. So we have the limited documentary evidence that we have suggests that they were feasting, they were playing music, they were dancing, they were letting off fireworks in the garden. But that's about all we really know. Um, Part of the archaeological project really will be to see what's actually left, what imprint, what physical remains did these celebrations leave behind. Mm. And I suppose that leads us on quite nicely to talking about sort of what's next. You've done your testing, you've, you've certainly got a hypothesis. So what happens from here? Yeah, the results of our test dig were were fantastic. It suggests that um, things are as we expect, that they're really well preserved, which means that when we go in to excavate, um, we should have some really good quality results. Um, But before we can get there, we have to finish our crowdfunding campaign, which um, yesterday we hit our 85% mark. So we've got just another 15% to go. You're nearly there then. So this is brilliant. So tell us how much you want to raise and, you know, tell us more about how people can get involved. Because it really is about getting people involved, isn't it, this project? Absolutely. This whole project is all about people who love Tudor history and want to make a significant contribution to doing some actual hands-on research and helping us get new evidence and tell a story that just hasn't really been discovered before. It's it's almost as though sitting in the grounds of Suderley Castle, there's just been this treasure just waiting there for the last 400 years for us to go in and and investigate together collectively. Um, Our aim is to raise £15,000, which will cover a two-week excavation, Mm -hmm. plus all of the research that we have to do afterwards. So anything that we find, we need to conserve, record, share, make available online, and get experts to analyse and provide a formal report. Um, For anyone who wants to come and get involved, there are basically two different ways to get involved. Mm -hmm. One is to roll up your sleeves, Mm -hmm. grab a trowel, and come and actually join our excavation team. So it doesn't matter whether you've done archaeology before or not. Everyone is welcome. We take the responsibility of teaching everyone exactly what they need to know to be part of our excavation team. We show you how to excavate, how to record, how to identify what you've found. And you get to dig alongside our team and be part of the team that uncovers a little piece of history. I mean, there's nothing quite like touching something or finding something that that hasn't been seen for 
400 years. Oh, I mean, this is this is just an amazing opportunity for people. I, I, I was lucky enough a few years back to, to be involved with the if like rediscovery of a lost set of carved panels that would have been in situ in one of Anne of Cleves houses. And it was such a privilege to be involved in that. And now with your project, people have that chance. They have a chance to come along and they're going to be able to say to their grandchildren, I participated in finding maybe, you know, a lost Tudor garden or maybe a banqueting house. And and that's a real kind of, well, not quite a once in a lifetime opportunity, but it's such an honour and a privilege and something I think that stays with you forever. Yeah, absolutely. It's an unforgettable experience. I mean, that's why I do it. I, I'm so privileged to to be an archaeologist. And part of the whole thing behind Dig Ventures is, is that we want to share that privilege with anyone who wants wants to be part of that and uncover history and understand the past. And it, ah, it's just so exciting. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and so, so you talked about the fact, you know, people have the opportunity to get involved by um, sponsoring the dig, but then they can come along and roll up their sleeves and get in the trenches and dig. And that's one way that people can get involved. And there's one level of sponsorship for that. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So people can come and dig for a day or a couple of days or a week, however much you want to do. But then there are people all over the world that love Tudors who might not actually be able to get themselves over to the UK and be part of the excavation. Um, We have people from New Zealand, from the Netherlands, from Scotland, from America, from we even have people in Dubai and India, people from all over the world supporting our digs. Mm. And they can watch online. Um, We do lots of live streaming. um, We publish all of our finds online. We create 3D models of our artifacts so that you can, as best you can, get that experience of holding the artifact and examining it for yourself from wherever you are in the world. Yeah, so what you're doing is really inclusive. So it doesn't matter. You could, you could, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to get there, then there's something for you. But if you want to watch this unfold and still be a part of making it happen, you can do it from the comfort of your own home as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you want to watch archaeology being discovered live in front of your eyes on, on your screen, on your laptop, wherever you are, you might be sitting on a bus or you might be just at home on your lunch break you can just tune into Dig Ventures and see exactly what we're doing. That's great. So when is the digging happening this year? And, 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 and really in a very practical sense, how do people sign up or support and crowdfund the project? The dig is starting in May, towards the end of May, and it'll be carrying on for two weeks. So starting on the 22nd of May and finishing on the 2nd of June. Um, to take part to crowdfund the dig to find out more about exactly what we're looking for and to hear a little bit more about the backstory all you have to do is go to digventures.com and it's it's all there brilliant well that yeah yeah, no can't get simpler than that so that's (laughs) www.digventures.com and people can find out everything they need to know from there absolutely that's brilliant well um I'm hoping to pop along and see all this in action. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and I'm hoping maybe I'll get to see some of um, you other files out there um, at the same time. That would be wonderful. So so do log on to the Dig Ventures website and do think about 
crowdfunding this and supporting the crowdfunding of this amazing project, which really is unearthing a little bit of Tudor history. So with that, I want to thank you, Maya, for uh, talking to us today and stirring up a little bit more Tudor excitement for everybody out there. You are more than welcome. And I hope to see you on site in May. Thank you very much. Bye. (laughs) Bye. So that's thanks to Maya for telling us all about this astonishing project at Sudley and good luck to the team for this year and let's hope they find that Elizabethan banqueting house. Now, since making that recording with Maya, I'm delighted to say that the project at Sudley has surpassed its 100% funding. However, there is still the opportunity to get involved. So if you want to get involved from the comfort of your own armchair or you want to put your wellies on, roll up your sleeves and get into a trench, you can still do so. So do make sure you head over to www.digventures.com and search on the Sudley project and you'll see all those different ways in which you can contribute and get involved and be part of the action as it unfolds this summer. And now it's time for our first little musical interlude. And this is a really well-known little ditty from Thomas Morley. Um, And the words, no less, were written by William Shakespeare. And I'm sure you'll be familiar with the tune. Just get ready with your hey nonny nonnies.
So did you sing along with a hey and a ho and a hey nonny no? <laughs> uh, that was the wonderful It Was a Lover and His Lass by Thomas Morley. And that tune brings us on to the second guest of the day. And I'm absolutely delighted to be talking today to best-selling author Tony Riches. Now, Tony's written a lot of books, both non-fiction, but in the Tudor sphere, he's probably best known for his Tudor trilogy about the dawn of the Tudor era. And Tony is fortunate enough to live in a very beautiful part of the country, West Wales, and in particular in Pembrokeshire. And so it's perhaps no surprise that the place we're going to be exploring and hearing about today as one of Tony's favourite Tudor locations is the mighty Pembroke Castle. So hello Tony, welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Hi, thanks Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're most welcome, you're most welcome. And it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today about uh, your favourite, or one of your favourite, Tudor locations to visit. And uh, that's Pembroke Castle. But before we go there, for those people who don't know you, Tony, maybe you would like to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do in the Tudor sphere? Yeah, well, I'm a full-time author and... Over the years, I've become a specialist in the early Tudors, and my Tudor trilogy, uh, I was lucky for it to become a bestseller in the US. So that's really sort of put me firmly into the Tudor niche now. And there was demand from readers for some kind of sequel. So I've carried on uh, with the timeline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm currently writing about Catherine Willoughby, which takes me from the death of her um, long-suffering husband, Charles Brandon, mm-hmm. through to the coronation of Elizabeth I. So uh, what I'm kind of thinking about now is which members of the Tudor, of the Elizabeth Tudor court, uh, am I going to cover in an Elizabethan trilogy? Yeah. And, you know, having written um, a, a novel myself, I know how deep one goes in the research. So I can imagine it's been really fascinating, actually, to start at the beginning of the Tudor reign and well, to kind of just fertile your way at quite a deep level through it. And I'm sure you must have learnt a lot. Wow. Well, the the um, you might see me on mastermind eventually on <laughs> just for Tudor's eating habits but um it's it's fascinating because i started off with the the early welsh Tudors um, at pemenith in anglesey with so little documented evidence most of it was in welsh and uh, it was really quite difficult to track down the facts and sort out the fiction mm-hmm. and now of course, with each passing generation, because I'm, I'm working my way through generation after generation, um, now with Catherine Willoughby, uh, there's just such a wealth. Any aspect of her life that I want to look at, you know, the rise of Protestantism, and um, I'm, I'm currently looking at uh, the Seymour family, of course, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the rise of Jane Seymour. And there is a real danger of just getting hopelessly bogged down. But all the time I keep thinking, oh, that'll make a good book. That'll make a good book. That'll be a good book. So you're but, going to be busy for some time to come, I think, is the bottom line. My my accountant told me to um, spend money on things I could claim back against tax. And I, I realised I could actually go anywhere 
and pretty much claim all the costs against tax. <laughs> so uh, that's that sort of is the way I spend my summers now. So I, I write during the winter, write a shopping list of places I want to go. And then in the summer, we actually visit all of the real locations, mm. which which just gives it that edge of authenticity if you've actually stood in, you know, the, the uh, ruined... Uh, chateau in the forest where henry tudor was in exile mm. uh, you can really describe how it might have been for him yes there's and nothing he, like it is there? yeah. there's absolutely nothing like it good well on that note we're going to go time traveling to a place that um you know well i believe and a place i haven't visited before so i'm looking forward to hearing all about it and as i mentioned at the top of this particular section we are going to be exploring pembroke castle so First of all, why have you chosen Pembroke Castle, Tony? Well, I was born in Pembroke within sight of Pembroke Castle, so that that's an easy start, isn't it? It is. Interestingly, at the time we're having this um, conversation, uh, is the 562nd anniversary of, of Henry VII's birth in Pembroke Castle. So um, I, I always felt some kind of connection with Henry, and that's really how I started getting into the early Tudors, because uh, there was so little really written about him at the time. Uh, he, he, he had this kind of miserly tag, you know what I mean, the miserly king. And um, the people always focused on uh, his son or both of his sons rather than him. And there was very little I could find that really brought his story to life. So that's how it all began for me. Mm. So. Um, I owe him a lot, actually. If I ever meet him, I'll shake his hand. <laughs> what do you think it's about Henry that attracts you? Because you're quite right. And, and I have to, you know, hold my hand up in some degree of guilt. You know, I also sort of always see Henry as this slightly older, yeah. more like miserly, boring kind of stick in the mud. But um, what is it about him that... Well, he was such you? a character and... Um, he, he used to dress so extravagantly. The whole miserly thing is a complete myth. He spent most of his time gambling at cards and losing, which appealed to me because it's <laughs> well documented. He even used to lose against his wife, uh, which cheered my wife up. And uh, he was quite a character. And, and of course, history has done him few favours because there is this great focus on uh, the later tragedies in his life. And uh, it was great to be able to put the balance right. And um, I've, I've really, um, if I had to say, I think he is one of my favourite Judas of all time. Now that I've got to know him. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm, I'm forging a new picture now of of maybe what Henry was was actually like. So thanks for that. But in terms of Pembroke, what's your first memory of visiting? Because I know sometimes when you go to a historical place or a historic place for the first time, it makes quite an impression. Yeah, oh, it's, it's just such a, a massive place. That, but um, I've been there so many times, it's really quite hard to think of when I very first went there. But um, on the 10th of June in 2017, there was a spectacular visit which was uh, the local community uh, I was part of a group that raised the money for a statue of Henry to be placed in front of the castle and it was unveiled on the 10th of June in absolutely torrential rain it really threw good it old British all, weather all the people that had been invited along to make speeches doggedly 
continue to make their speeches while they were getting soaked through. <laughs> and uh, the, the, um, the whole thing was really quite memorable. But uh, the good thing is now that people used to drive through Painbrook and be blissfully unaware that Henry VII was born there. But now this statue is such an eye-catching landmark that they actually um, make a point of visiting just to see the statue and to have their photograph taken with it. And we've orientated it on the bridge so that the the castle is in the background. Mm. So you can get a really nice picture of you stood next to the statue with the castle in the background. How brilliant. Well, well done you. That's fantastic. And what about the castle itself? You said it's large. I mean, can you give us a snippet of of information about its history and, you know, um, its context for the Tudors and for Henry and, and... and then we can maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what yeah, you can see when you go. I mean, when when you go there, one of the things you'll see is that it's surrounded by water on three sides. And that's not a moat. It's the Pembroke River. So there's a massive crag of rock, um, which happened to have a natural cave in it, which uh, I believe it was the Romans that first uh, built a wooden settlement, uh, a fort on top of it, because from there you can see the countryside all around. It's a very high spot. Right. Then you can get a ship right up to the castle. In fact, we've sailed right up to the castle walls and moored up against the side of it. And uh, you really get a sense then of how it functioned. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the Normans, um, and particularly a guy called William Marshall, who you might have heard of. Oh, yes, I Uh, have. (laughs) Yeah. uh, William Marshall became... Uh, the Earl of Pembroke, and he he replaced a lot of the rather um, wooden structures and things that had just been put together by various um, keepers of the castle over the years. He replaced it with much of the fortification that, that you'd see today, including a massive curtain wall. And um, in the middle of it is a keep, which is unique in the country, probably unique, what well, is unique in the world, because it's 22 metres high and it's got this amazing domed roof so it's if you can imagine 22 metres high and something like 16 metres in diameter Mm. and when you go inside and look up it's like a bit like being in St Paul's Cathedral you know you're expecting I don't know what you expect really from the outside but when you go inside it's like a whispering gallery massive massive place and I think it's the only one in the world with a a domed um, roof like that and then there's all sorts of um, outbuildings and things like that and uh, towers including the tower where um, Henry the Seventh was said to have been born and mm-hmm. I say that because when you go in there there's a you might have seen photographs of it there's a quite a, uh, a 1980s or 1970s um, tableau with sort of waxwork figures and it shows Margaret Beaufort, who would have been um, 14 at the time, as a kind of middle-aged woman. <laughs> uh, the baby she's holding looks about two years old. <laughs> That's a newborn baby. And it, it took me a while to realise, because I was always a little bit critical of it, that um, perhaps it goes back to the 70s, the original one, but the sensitivities at the time, they wouldn't have perhaps wanted to show her as a as a 14-year-old, you know, with a baby. Yes. Yeah. And that's quite not an accident. Mm. But um, there's been recent excavations adjacent to that tower where they found the foundations of a, a massive uh, medieval hall, right. which 
probably was where um, Margaret Beaufort would have really lived, not in this cramped little tower, it's probably used by her centuries, yeah, but in this massive hall. Um, and they're continuing to excavate that, so that's quite fascinating. So when you go, you've got the big curtain wall, you've got a central keep. There obviously are some other structures, uh, um, the tower that you've just been talking about. Yeah. Is it all sort of open to the sky and in ruins, or is there any bits that have, you know, sort of have have uh, managed to survive time? No, you can you can walk through um, a covered area where there's a little um, sort of display, and then you can walk through within the castle walls. Uh, to connect the towers. It was restored in the 60s so that um, it was so suitable for opening to the public. Yes. The, but the best walk is a bit like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, um, Framlingham, you know how you, how you can do yes. the walk along the top? Around the, around <laughs> the, yeah, around the, the walls. At the risk of falling off, but there's that <laughs> spectacular view. It's similar to that where the, there's a walk along the top of the walls. Ah, oh, wonderful. Uh, not like Harlick Castle, which terrified me. Have you been there? I haven't, no. The safety rails come up to your knees. Oh, dear. And then there's a 300-foot drop, um, <laughs> sheer drop the other side, and there are little signs saying, please take care. But then... <laughs> The prevailing winds are doing their best to blow you over the edge, you know. Clearly no health and safety officer has no. managed to make it there yet. <laughs> um, no, so so um, mm. I mentioned up to William Marshall, but of course Jasper Tudor became the Earl of Pembroke. Of course. And, and um, it was it was his base in, in this area. So that's, again, why I feel an affinity with Jasper. And Owen Tudor lived there as well. And, of course, they set out from there... Um, for this um, dreadful um, battle at Mortimer's Cross. Mm. So it's from there that they left. Right. So, in, in effect, am I right in saying that you could think of Pembroke Castle as the birthplace of the Tudor dynasty, as, you know, the, the Tudor dynasty as we, as we came to know it, with the birthplace of Henry VII? Yes, yes, definitely. And, um, I mean, we have to be clear, people refer to, um, I've heard him referred to as Welsh, he wasn't really very Welsh, because uh, when you think um, of his of his ancestry, he happened to live in Wales, and um, you know his grandfather uh, was Welsh, so mm. that's how Welsh he was—a quarter Welsh. A quarter Welsh. Yeah. So back to um, visiting. If I was going to visit today, what, what would you be saying to me in terms of you must see this, look out for that, go and see that? Oh yeah, well. I think what I'd say to you first is to get onto the Pembroke Castle website mm. because they have a, a really busy programme of events right throughout the season, which will be starting soon. And they have a lot of reenactments. So they've got people like the Sealed Knot and the Medieval Jousters and all that kind of thing. But they also have other events um, for different groups. So they they have like um, rock concerts in there and stuff like that, right through to special activities for children to learn how to be a Tudor squire and things like that. And they're really well managed. They're really well run. And it, it does, it changes a visit to a castle into a proper day out that's yes. worth travelling down, planning out, staying overnight. If you're just going to drop in casually, 
it is possible to to make a day of a visit to Pembroke because there's a there's a nice there's a really nice shop which has got my books in it just outside the um, the gatehouse. Duly noted, Tony. <laughs> inside, there's a there's a, a reasonable um, cafe which does nice um, baguettes and things like that. So you know you don't have to worry about what to do for lunch. Mm-hmm. Also. Um, some really good little pubs in Pembroke Town, which is just, just five minutes outside the castle. And one of them um, has got a, a, a carving of Margaret Beaufort in it, so that, that's that's worth a visit. But um, if you're going to sort of visit it, then there are guided tours, and uh, the people in the shop can tell you when the next guided tour is. And if you don't know much about the history of it, then that's quite a good way of doing because they can answer all of your questions and everything like that. Yeah, yes, a, a wealth of information, and it really puts things in context, doesn't it? As you say, if you don't know much about the place, but you mentioned you... before, did you mention before you arrived by water at some point? Yeah, so so um, you can sail from our mooring here all the way down the Clothay and then up the Pembroke River which goes right up to Pembroke Castle. Now, the actual mill pond um, is, has got a, a lock on it, which is with a lock keeper. So you have to um, make arrangements to get access into the into the mill pond. Right. Uh, but, are, there, are there any tours run on the water commercially, or is that a, would you have to hire a private boat? Last year, they, they did um, boats that you could hire that you could just paddle around the mm. castle so you can get around three sides of the castle there's also a walkway on the other side of the river which goes right around the castle and what i recommend is um if you're at all into photography is to go down go down early go down at sunrise but i i recommend sunset this mm-hmm. time and uh, I've, I've got some spectacular pictures from that walkway of uh, getting the castle at different angles mm. it's it's quite easy to get it with nothing modern in the shot you know yes that's wonderful so, and i think it's good to do that i mean you you so often go and visit a place and you're in it but actually yeah. you don't get the best view of the place and so thinking of how you can get outside of it you know and go for a walk that gives you these great vistas mm. of any of these wonderful buildings is is, is actually a really good thing cool thing to do have to you have to stop at the statue as well of course pay respects to henry and if you cross over the road the church on the other side of the road St Mary's church has got a stained glass windows in it and one of them is um a victorian stained glass window of henry the seventh but it's worth a look if, yeah. if there. there aren't that many stained glass windows of henry that are um as easy as that to see yeah, the church is yeah. quite interesting as well okay and um, well, the other Sorry, I was just going to, I just, while I remember that um, I mentioned that it's built over a natural cave, which uh, I think it's the only castle that I know of anyway that, that is built over a natural cave. Do you know of any? No, it's, I don't. It's a massive cave. It's what they used to do was to bring ships up to a jetty and then unload into the cave. So when they were under siege and stuff like that, in fact, I. I put that um, Jasper was besieged um, in by the Yorkists in Pembroke Castle, and that's how they um, attempted an escape was through this cave. It's called Wogan's Cave, mm-hmm. and uh, you can visit it now. It's it's um, a really eerie, strange place to oh, be so in. You it's, can actually get inside it, and they yeah. did make use of it. It was almost, as you say, it was like a, a landing place. 
when you visit the castle and you look for the point signs pointing to Wogan's Cave and there are some little narrow steps going out into it and then it opens out into this massive big cave which is a natural cave as well. So, I mean, what I'm feeling here is a visit to Pembroke is is a good day trip. Um, You've got the castle, church, restaurants, you've got the caves and potentially um, some events going on at the castle if you time it with that. So it really is a good full day out. If you happen to be into the Tudors, um, then you could actually recreate um, Henry and Jasper's escape from Pembroke Castle because um, what they did, uh, the siege relented a little bit and they realised that um, they were never going to be able to hold the castle. So um, Jasper Tudor and young Henry escaped to the nearby town of Tenby which you could do as well. And when you go to Tenby, if you go to um, the church there, just across the road from it is Boots the Chemists. And underneath that is the secret tunnel that they escaped to the harbour. And um, Boots the Chemist uh, actually let me down there to go through Really? That. Wow. Because uh, some people still to this day say that it's a myth, you know? And it's, it's not. It's there they, and you've been there. In, in, the, in the tunnels, there's a medieval fireplace full of broken uh, medieval bottles. And it does raise the question, why would they have a fireplace in a tunnel, in a tunnel. if they weren't going to plan to hide people down there? And why would right. they hide people down there? Well, during the Wars of the Roses would be an obvious time because Tenby was um, taken by the Yorkists. So any Lancastrians uh, would have to stay in hiding. And... Um, the harbour is just around the corner, but on the way down to the harbour, you pass the Tudor Merchant's House, uh, which is an excellent National Trust property. It's it, it's it's post um, Jasper's time, but uh, it does give a very authentic uh, view of Tudor life in Tenby, and you can see the harbour from there. So you can see the harbour where they sailed off. They were heading for France, but they actually ended up in Brittany, of course. Wow, so that's loads for us to see. So thank you very much for inspiring me. I've now got loads of little ideas about what I want to go and see and when I want to go and see it. So thank you very much, Tony. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Great, it's been lovely talking to you. And uh, do let me know when you come down to Pembroke. We'll try and meet up. Oh, and we must do one more thing before we go. I always like to check in with folk about, you mentioned your next project is to do with the Seymours and Catherine Willoughby. When, 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 when won't we might expect your new book, Tony? I've, I've um, told my editor that it's going to be with her by June. And um, the, the deal that we've got is she's allowed to take as long as she wants, uh, going through everything on it, dates and the lot, not just my um, typos and things. So um, I'm hoping to have it available um, in the autumn. But I'm really enjoying writing it. Uh, what, another person you see, Catherine Willoughby. I call her Catherine Willoughby. I could call her Catherine Brandon or Catherine Bertie. But um, she's such a fascinating Tudor woman and so brave, you know. And then can you imagine what it was like? You you you, you um, decide that you're going to be a, a Protestant and under um, Edward's rule. And then Mary goes and takes over. <laughs> And then, so, like, what do you do then, you know? Yeah, uh, it, honestly, it's amazing how these it's people it's manage to get like through the, it all. Um, can you just bear with me while I have a think about this? It was, <laughs> it, because, um, and, of course, then eventually uh, it all comes full circle. And Elizabeth 
and yes. takes and it, it, it what I find fascinating is to to see all of these events through the eyes of somebody that lived through it all but was in a position on the edge of it all so not at the center of everything but close enough you know and mm-hmm. um, I've got one book which talks about Catherine as possibly Henry's seventh wife, because after Charles Brandon died. um, But, you know, that's all speculation, but it's quite fun. Mm, And it shows, you know, she was quite close to Henry in all sorts of ways and, and, um, you know, saw him out, really, Mm. in the end, of course. But in the meantime, the best book for people to read of yours if they're planning a trip to Pembroke Castle... Well, Jasper, Jasper is the second book of the Tudor trilogy, and that that shows him becoming the Earl of Pembroke. And then, of course, um, Henry is actually um, born in the first book. So he, the way I wrote the Tudor trilogy, he's born in the first book, and then he comes of age in the second book, and you know they they invade. Um, England in a reckless attempt to, to um, mm-hmm. replace Richard III. And, of course, that, that that's never going to happen, is it? <laughs> and then the third book is his, his life as king. So it starts with Bosworth and it goes through to his death, basically. And um, so the, the sequel, I call it a sequel. I, I really enjoyed writing about his daughter, um, Mary Tudor, um, who was a little girl towards the end of the book, and I really, I really liked her story. How she, uh, Henry VIII, promptly married her off to the King of France, you know, who was pretty much on his deathbed anyway. And uh, she just took it all in good spirit, as far as I can tell. I can't find any. I've got, you know, there's her letters, uh, um, and I can't see any any complaints really at all about what happened. And part of the deal was she was allowed to marry whoever she wanted, and she chose Charles Brandon, and so that that kind of set set out the um, the list of books I wanted to write, and um, then as I was finishing Charles Brandon, um, Catherine Willoughby comes on the scene, and I realised what a fascinating woman she was. I love the way you've linked all those books together. But I also know that if you're going to go somewhere, it's really good to read something about the place. Not just the factual stuff, but there's a lot in fiction books because fiction writers, as I now know through personal experience, often put a lot of research in in the background. So although it's written in a fictional way, you can really bring some of these places to life. So that's my recommendation to everybody out there. And thanks again, Tony. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Tony Riches telling us all about one of his favourite Tudor locations and what fantastic insider top tips we got there from someone who knows the area like the back of their hand. And also a little insight into what Tony has been up to and what we can expect from him in his next project. Now, as I talk to you today, the sun is streaming through the window here. It's a beautiful spring day. The garden is is almost in full bloom and all the apple blossom is coming out on the trees in the garden. And so it seems very fitting that we should finish with one final song, which is, I guess, an ode to springtime. It's another song by Thomas Morley and it's called Springtime Mantleth Every 
bow, uh, a kind of jaunty springtime-like tune for us to enjoy at the end of the show. we come to the end of this month's programme and it's time to say goodbye. But before I do so, I'm very well aware that the holiday season is fast approaching and I hope wherever you are in the world that you may well be thinking about planning your next Tudor adventure. And if you are, I want to remind you that over on the Tudor Travel Guide blog, which is www.thetudortravelguide.com, I have recently launched a series of digital mini guides um, which to accompany either a perfect Tudor day out or even a Tudor weekend away. Or if you're petite, feeling particularly ambitious, perhaps you would like your own personally signed copy of In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn or in the footsteps of the six wives of Henry VIII. If you hop on over to the shop and tour section of the blog, you'll be able to see if there is a location that takes your fancy. And with that, you'll have loads of Tudor detail at your fingertips to make the most of your time on the road and give you that deeper connection to some of your own personal Tudor heroes and heroines. So with that, I will say adieu until the beautiful month of May. And I look forward to joining you again when we'll be exploring yet more fabulous Tudor locations and artefacts. So until then, as ever, happy time traveling. (laughs) 